2: i'm going to um, read a, f- a few uh sort of uh, quite brief extracts from the book um, most of the 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 early reviews and responses I've had um, have picked up suspiciously uh mainly on the back copy which sort of makes me wonder if uh you know how far the reviewers actually got um some of them uh Maybe have read the introduction and the conclusion, but um, it's actually quite a. The book has quite a lot of scope, and, um, and it goes quite sort of wide in, in terms of what it covers. And um, so I'm going to try and uh, read bits that you know reflect some of the other things in the book, apart from the you know there's the you know deliberately inflammatory stuff about. Uh, are we running out of past, and uh, are we heading towards a cultural, ecological catastrophe, where pop, horse, pop history is exhausted? Um, you know, understandably, people have picked up on that element, but um, there's quite a lot of other stuff in in the book. So I'm going to do a, sort of some amuse-bouche's um, of that stuff. And the first thing I'm going to re- uh, the book is actually divided into uh, three sections. Um, and uh, the first one is called Now, um, and uh, it uh, it's sort of looking at the contemporary uh, retroscape, I guess, and so it's looking at uh, the nostalgia in- industry, reunion tours, uh, reissuing um, all, all, all forms of um, you know the the, the industry of, of uh, reusing, revisiting the past in music primarily, and. Um, one of the more bizarre things that I uh, came across that I uh, wrote about was there was this fad for reenactments uh, that was big in the art world for quite a, a large swathe of, um, of the noughties, and quite a lot of them. Some of them were political reenactments, um, but quite a lot of them were musical ones. There seemed to be some some things particularly drawing artists towards you know uh, sort of legendary. Uh, mythical, uh, not not mythical, but like kind of you know legend enshroud, enshrouded events in rock history, um, and so in this little extra, I'm going to focus on uh, one of the more bizarre ones. Um, so I mean, some of the, some of the some of the some of the most well known um, there are American exponents of these reenactments, but a lot of, it was a particularly British phenomenon, and. Um, some of the most famous ones was um, uh, Jeremy Deller did this uh, recreation of the Battle of Orgreave, which was the big um, uh, big sort of day of of almost war between the striking miners and the police in 1984. Um, And so in some ways that is actually like you know, a historical reenactment like the you know civil war reenactments, which you know the English civil war is a very common thing for, for historical reenactments. But obviously, the civil war in America is of, is often uh, battles are reenacted. Um, and there's another guy called Rod Dickinson who did um, uh, he did a reenactment of uh, uh, things that happened in Jonestown. Um, and um, there's, he also did one that was a reenactment of Stanley Milgram's um, famous social psychology experiment, um, Obedience to Authority. Um, and it's, it just it was like a huge buzz term in the art world during um, during the last decade. And you had performance artists like Marina Abramovich did, um performed sort of, you know, legendary performance art. Pieces by Nauman and Aconci and people like that. Um, anyway, uh, one of the the main sort of uh, players in uh, in the British end of this uh, phenomenon was uh, the uh, a curator at um, the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London, which is this long-standing home for you know cutting cutting-edge, vanguard art in in Britain and. Um, her name was Vivian Gaskin, um, and uh, she sent out a call for proposals. One of the pieces she commissioned was British artist Joe Mitchell's recreation of uh, Concerto for Voice and Machinery, a legendary January 1984 performance at the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Arts, uh, by members of the infamous German metal-bashing outfit, Einsturzende Neubauten, which had escalated into, into an audience riot. The idea of restaging the event, complete with a disorder, in the very same auditorium at the ICA, had a conceptual neatness that was irresistible. So, this, this event that Joe Mitchell did was called Con- Concerto for Voice and Machinery 2. And it was a meticulous attempt to recreate the original event, which primarily involved members of Einsturz and Neubauten playing their usual unconventional musical instruments power drill, angle grinder, cement mixer and so forth, with contributions from various industrial music fellow travellers, such as Genesis Peorich. Accounts vary widely, but the performance appears to have gotten out of hand, with someone, a member of the ensemble or an audience member, attempting to drill through the auditorium floor. The audience then got the impression, possibly mistaken, that the ICA officials were attempting to shut the show down, and that led to altercations, shouting, and some low-level destruction. The notion of a planned riot obviously courts absurdity as does the attempt to meticulously replicate chaotic events that have been exaggerated and distorted in their telling over the years. When Joe Mitchell wrote her proposal, she was unaware of the dearth of documentation. I'm, uh, I'm not going to do people's voices when I have quotes, so you'll just have to... <laughs> um, I, really, I really did think I would find film footage of it. I thought the ICA would have recorded it. But the ICA archives had nothing. After all, this was not an era in which everything was automatically filmed or sound recorded. Today, the most minor gig is likely to be saved for posterity by a band member, or put onto YouTube as unofficial cell phone footage before the gig is even finished. All Mitchell had to draw on were live reviews in the three music papers that covered the event, pictures taken by those uh, papers' um, photographers, and an assortment of wildly contradictory accounts from eyewitnesses. During, uh, during the year-long process of researching and preparing for the event, Mitchell did eventually get hold of a bootleg audio recording of, of the event, uh, the 1984 event, and Neubauten member Mark Chung provided her with the score for the concerto. It has three movements, basically an intro, and then road drills come in, and chords and voices, and it climaxes with this big finale called Down to the Queen. Um, and the idea here was that, um, as a climax, um, the group would drill through the floor in the vague direction of the tunnels that are rumored to exist deep underneath the ICA building, uh, which is right in the centre of London, uh, and, which are ne- uh, and these tunnels allegedly connect uh, Buckingham Palace to underground bunkers uh, built as shelter for the royal family and members of the government in the event of a nuclear attack, because ICA is right sort of in the epicenter of the House of Parliament. Buckingham Palace, and uh, all the sort of uh, military headquarters in London. Um, through the photographers who supplied her with contact sheet images that had never been printed, Mitchell was able to get a sense of who had been the ringleaders and troublemakers in the audience, and to cast and costume actors appropriately. One particularly proactive rioter sported a Mohican, for instance. The reenactment involved actors playing the musicians, crowd members and the ICA security people and officials, which meant that the performance on uh, 20 February 2007 had a real audience mingled with the actor audience and two sets of ICA employees, one fake and the other real. And these real, uh, you know, as in contemporary ICA officials, had um, a somewhat sanitizing effect on their reenactment and they had to step in to prevent over members of the actual audience from joining in with the staged destruction there were also uh, much tighter health and safety regulations there couldn't be as much dust or smoke as, as there had been in 1984 and, uh, and the ICA people even handed out earplugs to the audience because uh, there was a limit on the amount of decibels um, that that were allowed to be used and the restrictions on the sparks generated by the angle grinder. That actually was all Joe Mitchell speaking, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Another aspect that was oddly dissonant to the original spirit of the event was that Mitchell um, secured the sponsorship of the um, equipment rental company HSS Tool Hire. Reenactments are very expensive, she explained, what with all the rehearsals and the cast members. In the photographs, I could see all the cement mixers, and they were from HSS, one of the biggest tool hire companies. I needed the machinery for th- the three weeks of rehearsals, and so they covered that, which would otherwise have cost 10,000 uh, pounds. Neubauern's chief conceptualist and frontman, Blixer Bargeld, had given Mitchell his blessing and found the whole idea of recreating the concerto to be charming. Although he, put, he although he had actually participated in the later stages of mayhem in the original performance, he decided not to attend as a spectator for fear of being a distraction and perhaps compromising the temporal integrity uh, of the reenactment. But while today's mellow, urbane Bargeld was tickled pink, I can't ex- I can't help suspecting that the young, amphetamine-wired Blixel would have seen red. For Einstein and Neubarton were even more fundamentally opposed to the idea of of a a sort of heritage culture than punk rock had been. Steeped in uh, Artaud, Nietzsche and Bataille, their whole artistic project was fueled by an apocalyptic lust for collapse. The name Einstein and Nurbarten translates as uh, collapsing new buildings. and Concerto for Voice of was that was kind of Neubauten's small-scale version of the, uh, the famous, infamous um, Sex Pistols boat trip on the River Thames, where they played their new album uh, opposite the House of Parliament. You know, a moment when, uh, and then the police boats kind of came and uh, arrested them all. Uh, so it's like this moment when rock collides with authority. But then what does it mean to make that clash happen again, this time with the permission of the authority in question? I've never really seen the point of historical enactments. All that meticulous attention to getting the uniform r- uniforms right. The cannon smoke. It seems obvious that the simulation of being there fails on every level. You know there's no real danger of death. You know what the outcome is going to be. It's just an exercise in pageantry. Nothing is really in jeopardy. In history has lived, the participants at Gettysburg didn't know that the Confederates were not going to win. Likewise, the audience who turned up for the original Concerto for Voice and Scenery didn't know that the event would descend into chaos. But doubtless, these contradictions are integral to the restaging by uh, Joe Mitchell and other uh, reenactment artists. In a way, the impossibility of recreating the event was part of it, she says. Similar sentence, sentiments have been voiced by other prominent reenactment artists like Rod Dickinson, the guy who did uh, the uh, Jonestown uh, reenactment. Uh, he's described his work as constructing a series of paradoxes, highlighting the contradictions that arise through trying to do something like that, the impossibility of it. So, uh, that. Uh, this is in in the section where I'm kind of interested in uh, just the just like the, the contradictions of repetition and how you know particularly particularly comes to the the fore with uh, with these reenactments where they're tied to an event which is like this you know a rupture in history uh, and then you create something that is like um, it can only be a non-event, like it's like dead time. It's a dead time of repetition. Yet, it's, yet it sort of has a. I guess the polemic these artists are engaged in is they're trying to sort of remind us that events have happened. That you know the hist, You know, the, they bring back some, uh, something of the as a simulation of, of history. That's going to reawaken our appetite for history in in some sense. Um, now, the second section of this book is um, is called. Um, what's it called? I've forgotten. Um, Uh, then (laughs) Um, and um, one of the things you know when I started thinking about retro culture and uh, and whether the current era of retro and uh, uh, pop repeating itself was was unusual in some way obviously I quickly realized that uh, there was an extensive history of of revivalism within uh, popular music Um, and uh, you know pop has often had a, a sense of uh, nostalgia for its own lost golden ages, um, and um, when I started thinking about it, I remembered um, uh, that in fact, really early in my own life, I'd come across a bunch of people, young, you know, young people who had dedicated themselves to sort of being out of time. When I first arrived at, at college in 1981, um, the, probably the most interesting people in my college were these. Uh, Kids who were were hippies, you know, they were they were, they, this was obviously the new wave era, and they had spurned the last, you know, youth rebellion, and they've just preferred. Hippydom, and they dressed the part. They had, the guys had beards. Uh, they were into the drugs. They were in, into the music. They played me things like uh, the Incredible String Band, which you know I was into Heaven Seventeen and things like that. I was what the hell on earth is this g- goofy nonsense? It's now one of my favourite records. But um, you know, uh, but there was also another guy, as, as well as people doing the late sixties. There was one. There was um, there was a whole gang of people dedicated to the late sixties and just living that completely, dressing the part. But there was also this one guy who was on his own who was uh, who was dedicated to being a mod he was like, he was just like 1966 was where he stopped and everything after that was terrible. Um, <laughs> so after I, I, I fell out with the hippies um, um, but I got befriended this guy because he was also a very interesting chap. so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a little bit about him and what what, you, what, um, what his story and his compulsions kind of tell you about why. Uh, why there is this sort of thing that happens where young people reject the youth music of their own time. Um, strangely, the hippies weren't the only people at my college trying to relive the 60s. After becoming estra- estranged from the long hair set, I befriended Zaki, a thin, cle- clean-shaven boy obsessed with a different corner of the decade, 1964 to 1966, the apex of mod music and style, just before the acid kicked in and the kaftans came on. Carnaby Street boutiques and Soho Cappuccino cafes, sharp-suited young men popping pills and cutting shapes in dimly lit discotheques, all the cliches of swinging England as seen in countless 60s movies and documentaries. Zaki dressed the part from his chisel-toed shoes, winkle pickers but less pointy, to his Nehru jacket with high-standing band collar. The collar doubly suited him because he was North Indian or Pakistani, I never asked, our relationship was entirely based around music. Looking so date stamped and period perfect, Zaki stood out like a sore thumb at Oxford. Unlike the hippies, he didn't have a crew to roll with, so he probably welcomed the company of someone like myself, whose appearance most likely affronted his sense of aesthetics, but who was keen to be hipped to the glories of 60s UK pop. Zaki had boxes of neatly arranged seven-inch singles, many in original uh, 60s picture sleeves, others in yellowing paper sleeves with uh, jukebox-style cut-out label centers. His view of what was proper and acceptable out of the 60s was tightly policed. The white American 60s, groups like the Birds didn't really get a look in, but the soul of the Motown and Wilson Pickett type was cool and he had striking opinions. For instance, he didn't rate The Beatles, in large part because of Ringo, who spoiled the group's image by looking goofy, and who, and who was, he claimed, absurdly, a lousy drummer. What Zaki loved above all were the groups who didn't make it, like The Creation, an amped up rhythm and blues outfit in the mold of The Who, um, whose thrillingly explosive tunes like Making Time and How's It Feel To Feel ought to have made them as big as The Who, but who only grazed the top 40. Then there was John's Children, uh, which was actually uh, Mark Boland's first band, whose fay frenzy of acid-tinged mod completely tanked at the time, and it was so inept that manager Simon Napier-Bell salvaged their debut album by turning it into a fake live record called Orgasm and splicing in audience screams from A Hard Day's Night. (laughs) But the biggest historical injustice, according to Zaki, was the non-success of The Action, a more soul-oriented mod band produced by George Martin. Singles like I'll Keep, I'll Keep On Holding On and Shadows and Reflections were so quintessentially 60s that they were almost characterless, a pure emanation of the zeitgeist. Zachary and I drifted off on separate paths. The last time I saw him was a few years after I'd moved to London as we were leaving the same uh, Leicester Square cinema. Appropriately enough, the film showing the scandal about the Profumo scandal of 1963. Which even has a tiny glimpse of mod culture in the scene where Christine Keeler dances to Scar in a shady club. Uh, Zaki still looks sharp as a pin, but in a different non 60s way. He was working, uh, if I remember rightly, as a trainee at a law firm. I'm still waiting, actually, to be sued by Zaki for any of the mistakes of memory I've made about his opinions. So. But. Um, the, the hippies at my college and, and Zaki the Mod were the first time I encountered the ph- phenomenon of the Time Warp cult. Young people taking a King, uh, Canute-like stand against the forward march of pop history. Zaki's special interest in the creation and the action typifies the Time, wart- time Warp cult cultist's drive to correct history. But it's also related to their need to somehow expand the lost golden age, make it last longer. And this trick is pulled off by fetishizing the second and third division groups of the era. In a sense, taking advantage of the overproduction of the music industry by retroactively overrating its unsuccessful products. So um, there's actually... I'm going to leap ahead a bit. There's actually a whole um, subculture in Britain uh, based precisely around this thing of um, overrating the second rate and third rate and, and and sort of using this overproduction of music that the industry uh, typically uh, does and did even more, I think, in the past. Um, And that is this this scene called Northern Soul, which sprung up in the early 70s in Britain, uh, in the north of Britain. And um, it was all based around Motown, the Motown-like music. Um, So I'm going to talk about that for a little bit. I've never totally understood the appeal of Northern Soul, that strange English cult for up-tempo 60s soul in the classic Motown style. Motown itself, yeah, fabulous, but fetishizing all the sub-Motown wannabes. Northern Soul came about at the end of the 60s when British taste in black American dance music split regionally. The south of England followed black American music's evolution to slower, funkier grooves, with Sly Stone, James Brown, and so forth. The North of England and the Midlands, for for reasons that are still slightly mysterious, preferred the high-energy Motown sound with its brisk beat and stirring orchestrations. Sticking with a style that had gone out of of style in its homeland, the Northern fans pledged allegiance to music that had been left behind by history. Hence, Northern Soul's big slogan, keep the faith. Gradually, they built an entire subculture with its own clothing style, slang, and rituals around this bygone music and I, through Zaki I, I met um, some young people at another college uh, who were basically Northern Soul fans I didn't realise that at the time I'd never heard of the term Northern Soul but uh, I got into Soul and I attempted to um, you know, befriend them and we swapped tapes um, but uh, they, didn't, uh, they, you know, they disapproved of the tape I did because it was, it was 70s Soul it was like uh, the Dramatics and Bobby Womack and people like that um, and it was past their cutoff point It was too too funky, too earthy, too mid-tempo, and it lacked the pounding beat they loved in The Four Tops and Wilson Pickett. These perfectly pleasant Puritans had an equivalent to the action. A touchstone singer called Major Lance, who recorded for the uh, OK label and had a couple of US hits produced by Curtis Mayfeld, along with a bountiful string of flops. His songs struck me as surpassingly mediocre, but as far as they were concerned, he was the great lost singer of the era. And many years later I discovered that Major Lance was in fact one of Northern Soul's uh, pantheon of God-stars. He was so revered and popular that he actually moved to the UK uh, for a couple of years in the early 70s. Um, The paradox of Northern Soul is that it began as an offshoot of the mods, uh, which is short for modernists. Uh, but in the north of England, the mods broke with the mod credo, which was you know to keep on keeping up with the cutting edge of black music and Italian style and, and so forth, um, and instead kept faith with the sounds danced to by mods during the movement's early to mid-60s heyday. For northern soul fans, this was the unsurpassable peak of black dance music. But DJs and dancers didn't just stick with the classics, the well-known golden oldies. On the contrary, the northern scene retained and intensified Mod's characteristic restlessness, its chase for the latest records, but it did this by redirecting the impulse into the past. So the quest was for new new old songs, what DJs and fans called unknowns, discoveries from the vast deposits of Motown-like music laid down during a short stretch of time in the mid-60s. Uh, low production costs and the immense reservoir of black talent in urban America encouraged a host of small R&B labels such as Rick Tick and Wheelsville in Wheelsville you can see it's a pun on, it's like a attempt to sound like Motown um, or have a name like Motown uh, to churn out singles in the hope of scoring a hit. A few were regional successes, most flopped but as a result there was a staggering amount of, of uh, decent quality up-tempo soul music still lingering in the world as vinyl singles. And this historical bulge of musical overproduction enabled northern Soul fans to perpetuate the the mid-60s moment indefinitely. Everything about the scene in its early days was a pure extension of mod. So they're into scooter riding, into popping uh, amphetamine pills and obsessing about clothes. Um, And in the early days uh, the basic look for, for young men was three button suits, Fastened at the top button, with a single vent at the back. He had Ben Sherman shirts, tight leg pants. The comb had to be very neatly haired. This is all part, you know, part of also defining themselves against uh, the late 60s and hippy derm and how uh, a lot of regular folk looked. Um, and uh, it basically, it was like a, you know, like the original mod. Northern soul was a, a white British fantasy of American blackness. One face on the scene, Tony Bremner, said, We wanted to pretend we were black. We danced like we were black. Uh, and visiting one of the legendary clubs, The Twisted Wheel, in 1971, Dave Godin, who was a journalist and he uh, owned a record store in London, he coined this term, Northern Soul. Uh, so he noticed that people were actually coming down from the north, specifically to buy old records and he marvelled at the fluent grace of the dancing and he noticed that everyone was on the floor was an expert in soul clapping in the right places and with a clipped quality that was just perfect. Um, But of course, you know, like uh, this northern fantasy of blackness was was completely out of date. In America, the new street style was uh, was afros and bell-bottoms and garish colours, sort of matching the psychedelic soul and funk uh, that was uh, dominant. Two songs distill the essence of the Northern Soul Dream, and both were sung by Doby Gray. 1966's Out on the Floor celebrates the transcendence over the workaday grind that could be found at the dance club, while 1965's The In Crowd glories in belonging to an aristocracy of sharp dressed stylists. The song celebrates being ahead of the pack. One, well, there it goes, other guys imitate us. Uh, through the cultivation of, of special knowledge what to wear, where to go, the new dance steps. Uh, and this this was the essence of Northern Soul. It was all about you know one one guy, a club promoter David Thorley, described it as a secret society, and it was a it was actually a way by which uh, working class youth could be elitist, which they could hardly achieve any other way. Um, uh, you know, cause, so normal working class kids would go to dance at the local nightclub in the high street of their town, but Northern fans would actually go on long journeys to specific clubs, uh, it would charter a, a coach even and go in a group to a, black, a club in Blackpool or uh, Stoke-on-Trent, you know, 50 miles away, which is a kind of uh, a prefiguring of what the rave culture would involve, long journeys to these sort of sacred temples of, uh, of music. Um, and one irony was that the Northern Soul fans were so obsessed with secret sounds and these sort of Unknowns from the past, uh, you know, secret knowledge um, that they thought of Tamla Motown itself as too commercial, which is basically common knowledge. It wasn't anything you could be elitist about. Uh, and in fact, uh, one one other term for Northern Soul was in the early days was rare soul, and people started to uh, hunt down these singles and. Um, pay, you know, increasingly astonishing amounts, for instance uh, there was a guy who ran a cigarette kiosk in Blackpool, but he had a box of, called Gary Wilde, he had a box of rare soul singles at the back and in 1968 he, he was selling these for five pounds, which was actually the uh, entire uh, week's income for your average working-class youth in those days. So, um, basically, uh, as I as I th- uh, mentioned earlier, the record industry is, is predicated on overproduction and waste. The bulk of its products don't get bought, and most of its signings fail to deliver a return on the investment. Um, and uh, Northern Seoul found a strange liberating gap within the system. It transformed redundant waste into the knowledge base and means to bliss of a working class elite. And at, disc- at, the, at the Northern Seoul um, club nights, which went on all night, um, You'd actually get like a market spring up on the edge of the dance floor, where, uh, where a lot of the focus of the night was dealers, like uh, you know, either trading records or selling them at, at huge prices. So by the you know by the early 70s, the rarest singles would be going up to about 50 pounds, which is you know a couple of months' uh, wages. Um, and then Northern Soul became like a scarcity economy. The whole, um, the rarity of the records uh, governed the status of DJs, and the competition between clubs, and what ruled the dance floor. Uh, because you know, if a DJ had a record that no other rival DJ had, and that fans couldn't find, the only way to hear it was to go to that club. So there's a kind of uh, a kind of uh, economic drive, uh, both in terms of Literal money, but also in cultural capital, in you know turning, got, turn a, a really obscure track into an anthem. And another thing that sprang up, which was actually invented uh, in, in a bunch of scenes simultaneously, it was also invented by rockabilly uh, uh, collectors, I think, is. Um, a thing where you, you, tr- you have to protect your secret knowledge. So one thing was uh, the cover-up, where Northern Soul DJs would actually uh, use whiteout to cover up the label so that spies, the other, the other rival DJs would have spies. They would send that to the clubs to try and work out what these, uh, these great tracks were. Um, and Northern Soul actually came up with its own even better twist on that, which was to take um, the label center of a, an inferior record uh, that was much more easily obtained and stick that over the rarity uh, to send the rival of DJs off on this fruitless quest for the the wrong record, um, and then th- then it got even more dastardly. You had this thing um, called um, uh, bootleg legging, whereas if if where one of these DJ spies could um, somehow find out what the record was, uh, the DJ and the DJ could then somehow find a copy of it, he would sell it to a bootlegger uh, who would flog up, um, would press up like knockoffs of it, like, you know, and they'd sell these for a more reasonable amount, like pound fifty. That floods the market. Uh, and so suddenly, uh, not only does the DJ who had this rarity no longer have any reason to play it, but they've actually got a record that's like suddenly completely lost its value. So he got pretty, you know, the rivalry got pretty vicious um, in this scene. But, you know, the, the worst effect of it was that this kind of cult of the non-hit would become a cult of the substandard. And you should see with all kinds of uh, collector cults, really, there's a lot, an element of people just kind of convincing themselves that not very good records are, are, are great, you know. Uh, everyone, everyone has an, in, uh, an incentive to do that, really. The, the dealers, the collectors. But um, Northern Soul really took it further than most. Um, and, uh, by the end of, uh, by the middle of the 70s, you know, people were, you know, the more clear-eyed members of the scene were complaining about that. Um, but by that point, the scene had actually, you know, had gone a long way from Mod. I don't know if you it's worth looking on YouTube to find footage uh, of Northern Soul because by the mid-70s, uh, particularly this place called the Wigan Casino, um, it had become this bizarre subculture. Um, the dress had changed. It wasn't mod anymore. People were wearing these kind of singlet vests and tank top sweaters, and these really strange pants that are all baggy around the legs because it's good for dancing. But they're very tight waisted and butt hugging. And everyone's doing these weird dances that are kind of like, um, like they're very balletic and athletic, like front flips, high kicks, leg splits. Uh, and because of that, you know. Um, uh, they developed a whole bunch of rituals, um, you would go to the clubs with a, a big bag, a hold or with a change of clothing because these were all night affairs, you'd get very sweaty. You'd have talcum powder to scatter on the floor so that you know when you're doing these acrobatics you don't slip over. And another crucial thing was chewing gum because of uh, all the amphetamines that were being uh, swallowed and you used something to deal with the teeth grinding. So basically the scene you know kind of peaked in the mid to late 70s went into uh, a bit of a decline carried on through the 80s revived in the 90s, um, and I just read in the newspaper, uh, in the Guardian actually, uh, that uh, Northern Soul is having another comeback. And so what's interesting about it is that there's a kind of um, doubling or even tripling of nostalgia going on. Maybe doubling actually, uh, uh, where you know you have peop- there's the nostalgia for uh, the 60s and the peak of black music, but there's also a nostalgia for Northern Soul's own heyday. And so you have you have uh, you have people. Northern Soul fans are now like in their 50s uh, coming to dance for nostalgia, but you also have like young kids who are just totally invested in all the kind of uh, mythology of the scene. Um, and um, it's a sort of double, a double homage or a double, a, sort of a golden age superimposed on another golden age. Um, so running all the way through Northern Soul is a logic of redemption. The original black music was all about the weekend of dance, dressing up romance that would redeem the working week. The mods built an amplified version of that black fantasy, accelerating the style turnover and creating a scene in which working class drones could become uh, faces. Uh, Northern Soul found a new facet to the secret knowledge that separated them from the dull-witted nobodies who were otherwise members of the same working class, Rare Soul. In the process, the DJs became stars. But so too, in a marvellous twist, did the original black performers, who years after giving up on their dreams of fame, found themselves the focus for a strange cult in a distant land. Soon they were flown over to sing to packed clubs and treated like t- stars, performers like Rose Batiste, who'd quit singing to work in the advertising department of General Motors and then as a typist at Motown, but whose flop single Hit and Run on the Rivolo label became an anthem at clubs like the Twisted Wheel. Uh, There was a wonderful mirroring effect, a mutually glorifying symbiosis between the desire for transcendence on the part of the Northern Soul fans and the disappointed dreams of stardom and escape from poverty that that had inspired the original performers, writers and producers of the music. Perhaps, uh, Perhaps alongside the defiance of time that is integral to Northern Soul, one fan at a 90s reunion event declared, it won't change, it won't stop, it's incessant. There is also a defiance of fate. Northern soul is pop history written by the losers uh, rewritten by the losers <laughs> so um, the third section of third, the third section of uh, retromania is um, is called tomorrow and uh, all these sections have like quote marks uh, all these titles have little quote marks around them because part of the idea is you know one of the aspects of a retromania culture is that uh, past, present, and future are all jumbled up, and it's hard to, you know, distinguish them. Uh, um, and uh, this section of the book is uh, it's called tomorrow, and it's it's really about um, a lot to do with, it, you know, the 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 idea of nostalgia for the future, uh, the way that. Um, a lot a lot of uh, interesting music in the last uh, decade or so has been at this sort of retro futurist current sort of uh, ideas of um, you know fetishizing uh, what are now antique synthesizer sounds and uh, ideas of uh, futurism that seem a bit quaint but still have a certain kind of utopian charge certain have a, a, a certain kind of um, you get the, the after image of what they originally meant um, and uh, in this last passage, I'm going to um, talk a little bit about the, the genealogy of this concept, uh, uh, nostalgia for the future, <laughs> which uh, I found was very hard to source, like loads of, loads of people have, have used that term. have seem to come up with it independently, uh, including uh, Richard, uh, Richard J. Daly, the mayor of Chicago, once said that people should be nostalgic about the future. Um, the phrase and concept seem to have a particularly strong resonance in the context of music. The first time I noticed it was in a record review by the musician and critic David Toop, describing a peculiar, poignant yearning that infused 90s electronic music made by outfits like uh, the Aphex Twin. Later, I came across a, an earlier quote by Toop's uh, ambient music peer, Brian Eno who in 1989 described the video paintings like mistaken memories of medieval Manhattan that he'd made in the early 80s as stirring in me a sense of what could have been a nostalgia for the future. But then there was also the Buzzcock's 1978 song Nostalgia on which Pete Shelley sings Sometimes sometimes there's a song in my brain and I feel that my heart knows the refrain I guess it's just the music that brings on nostalgia for an age yet to come. It could be, though, that Toop, Eno, and and Pete Shelley all got the idea, directly or indirectly, from the critic and composer um, Ned Roram. In the text for a 1975 music catalogue, Roram argued argued that music, in contrast to pictures or words, does not deal in facts, that is, in associations, which by their nature concern the past. Yet music is associative of what? Music is the sole art that evokes nostalgia for the future. As a a music obsessive who privileges that art form above all others, I like the boldness, the patriotism of Roram's claim. I wonder if it's actually true. More to the point, I'm not exactly sure what he means. That music's abstraction expresses all those unclassifiable and contradictory mixed emotions that we can't articulate. That music's truest yearnings are impossible in revolt against the real. It's perfectly likely, even probable, that Ned Roram came up with the phrase all by himself. But as it happens, someone else got there first, the Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa, who scribbled it down at some point in the early decades of the 20th century in the notebooks that would eventually see publication in 1982 as the Book of Disquire. One of um, uh, Pessoa's major preoccupations as a writer was boredom or tedio in uh, Portuguese. In a passage describing the oppressive ennui that descends upon him during late afternoons, Pessoa writes, of um, a feeling worse than tedium but for which there's no other name. It's a feeling of desolation I'm unable to pinpoint. The physical universe is like a corpse that I loved when it was life. And yet what nostalgia for the future if I let my ordinary eyes receive the salutation of the declining day. I don't know what I want or don't want. I don't know who I am or what I am. Like someone buried under a collapsed wall, I lie under the toppled vacuity of the entire universe. As with Nostalgia by the Buzzcocks, uh, a group whose career started with a song entitled Boredom, there's a longing to escape to an absolute elsewhere, uh, the non-place or utopia um, of a desire that can't be defined, because any realisation would always fall short of the ideal. Nostalgia can project the absent ideal into the past or into the future, but mainly it's about not feeling at home in the here and now, a sensation of, of alienation. In recent decades, nostalgia for the future has gradually lost its vagueness and become tied to a specific uh, fixed idea an archaic and sometimes comically ossified idea of what the future is going to be like. It's become a retro-futurist emotion. Those sensations of wistfulness mixed with irony and amazement offset by amusement that are induced by old science fiction movies, modernist cooking ware and furniture from between the two world wars, and images from the 50s and 60s world fairs, with their exhibitions of technological innovations and scientific breakthroughs. Looking at all these bygone projections into the future, which is actually our present, you can still faintly feel, as a kind of afterimage, the awe that was stirred by these technological marvels and stark modernist uh, ziggurats. But it is coloured by the hindsight knowledge that very little of this became reality. Alongside the, uh, the, world, uh, the World's Fairs, probably the most uh, influential source of popular culture notions of what the future would look like was Dis- uh, Disney's Tomorrowland. At the opening ceremony in 1955, Walt Disney described Tomorrowland as an opportunity to participate in, ve- in adventures that are a living blueprint of our future, and he hailed today's scientists for opening the doors of the space age to achievement that will benefit our children and generations to come. Some of these scientists, including Werner uh, von Braun, the man responsible for the V2 rockets that bombarded London during the final stages of World War II, and later a key figure at NASA actually worked as technical consultants uh, in the design of Tomorrowland. Alongside Rocket to the Moon, Astrojets, Autopia, and a monorail, Tomorrowland featured corporate-sponsored attractions such as the General Electric Carousel of Progress, the TWA Moonliner, and the Monsanto House of the Future. The latter was made almost entirely of plastic, the material of the future. these guys would have, would have been amazed to see the trends in interior decor that subsequently happened. Uh, but um, Tomorrowland was rebooted in 1967 as New Tomorrowland. But over the, <laughs> uh, the ensuing decades it grew shabby and faded. So in 1998 it was remodelled as a classic future environment, in the words of the Disney press release. A, mu- a museum for now kitschy quaint notions of the future. Reporting on the relaunch Tomorrowland for Time, Bruce Handy opened with the quip, The future isn't what it used to be. Attractions included the Astro Orbiter, which PJ O'Rourke joked was built in a style that might be called Jules vernacular. Intriguingly, though, this new, ironic Tomorrowland didn't play well with the public, suggesting that retrofuturist irony was still at that point a minority sensibility, appealing to the kind of sophisticates unlikely to visit Disneyland. Um, that's a bit of a snobbish comment, isn't it? But, uh, 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 anyway, the next bit is about how, I, I, being rather, despite being rather sophisticated myself, we, I did go to uh, Disneyland, because I have some children who are in the audience, and, um, and me and my brother, who's also in the audience, um, we all made the trek out to Anaheim. My, my consolation for the bad food and the sharp pain in the wallet was that I would get to see what had become of Tomorrowland after it had abandoned both futurism and retro futurism. I also I was going to try and write off the visit, uh, but I thought the IRS would just not accept <laughs> accept the receipts for D- Disneyland as their research purposes. Um, Tomorrowland did not disappoint in the sense that it was even more disappointing than I'd imagined. (laughs) For the most part, it was overrun with movie-franchised attractions like a Buzz Lightyear ride and a Star Wars training session for kids to be junior Jedi Knights jousting with lightsabers. Instead of Monsanto's House of the Future, there was now the Innoventions Dream Home, a lacklustre and desultory showcase for domestic entertainment technology that seemed at most a year or two ahead of the Radio Shack mainstream. (laughs) After being greeted at the entrance by a vintage-style robot that could have stepped off the set of a 50s sci-fi movie like Forbidden Planet, uh, we reached the first display, an array of allegedly futuristic musical instruments made by Yamaha. A bleached blonde went through her strained perky patter for the umpteenth time that day, encouraging children to have a go on a sort of keyboard guitar that could be made to sound like a koto or a dulcimer, and to take turns bashing the drum kit, whose pads triggered samples like a man's laugh or a lion's roar. That was similar to things I'd seen bands like uh, Disco Inferno do in the mid-90s. She also demonstrated a microphone that could pitch-shift your voice from mouse squeaky to slowed-down ultra-baritone. Again, no no great shakes. Further inside the dream home, whose decor of fake wood panels and dingy tones of beige and form and fawn uh, reminded me of a motel chain or a convention center, there was a moving-image wall. Uh, there was moving image wall art in old-fashioned picture frames, a coffee table with an inlaid video screen on which you could piece together a virtual jigsaw, and a wall-sized movie screen that was really not that much bigger than the flat-stream TV in our Los Angeles hotel. It was all desperately uninspiring and lugubrious. P.J. O'Rourke, a wonderstruck child fan of the original Eisenhower era, Tomorrowland, argued that this new incarnation was not so much the fault of the Disney culture as the fault of our culture. We seem to have entered a deeply unimaginative era. The problem isn't an an inability to innovate, it's an incapacity to come up with visionary goals to aim for. The future promised by the Intervention's dream home heralded only slight increments of convenience and vividness to our lives as consumer spectators." So uh, that's uh, the three little samples of uh, Retromania. Um, and um, if anyone has any questions, I'm happy to uh, answer them. Yeah.
0: Yeah, just curious, uh, Talk about music, your state, your feeling is radio kind of just a reflection of the so called freeze in music and retro, or are they kind of holding back maybe some of this, or somebody referred to it as corporate radio, it's no longer rock radio. Do um, you feel we're not hearing new things, or are
2: you? Um, no? uh, mo- well, most of the stuff that I hear on the ra- radio, um, I mean, my, you know, innovation in pop music is always contextual, you know. Um, so, uh, a lot of, a lot of the music uh, that you hear on mainstream radio now might be new to American mass audience, I don't know. Um, but it sounds a lot like 90s club music from Europe to me. And I think that stuff did get into the American mainstream. You know, Madonna did uh, Ray of Light, which was inspired by Trance, and that was in the late 90s. So, uh, you know, most of the stuff I hear on mainstream radio is very... Uh, seems very familiar to me. Um, and... Um, uh, but you know, one of the polemics in the, in my book is is also that the alternative scene is, you know, is just as uh, oriented to the past. There are, you know, I could list quite a few bands I think of as innovative or um, uh, doing relatively fresh, striking things. But there has been a big shift in the last uh, uh, ten years, particularly amongst the people who you you would have once associated with with you know wanting to be a vanguard uh, where it's very much bound up with the hipster sort of uh, vanguard of music is very much like archaeological it's very much like kind of uh, you know I've interviewed this label f- uh, based in LA called uh, not not fun and they were they, they were talking they use this hip hop term digging in the crates to describe how a lot of the bands on their label and their scene kind of operate it's like you know looking for the p- looking for things that no one's thought of um, to, um, to rework or revive, and it's almost like, um, I almost feel like the idea of the future or the unknown, uh, which is explored further in that chapter I was uh, reading from, I go on to talk about parallels between the space race and, um, and, uh, and music in the late 20th century. Um, I almost feel like the 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 past has displaced the future as as a sort of thing of romance, you know. And you can see that with things like steampunk. You can see it with uh, the success of books uh, and and TV, like Game of Games of Thrones. All these kind of that's not literally the past, but it's it's a sort of postmodern mix of pastness. And it's almost like um, it's almost you know. It's almost like the future isn't even a, a thing to think about, you know. Um, while we, when we were driving, I was listening to all these these dance songs, um, and there's a, a whole bunch of songs that are all basically the idea is I'm going to dance like it's my last night, like till the end of the world. Uh, there's one called uh, Last Night, I think, or Last uh, Last Time or something, where he's just going to drink so much that night because he's going to. Act like it's the last time it's like. There's another one, uh, give me everything, give me everything tonight, because I can't promise you tomorrow. And I wonder if that's related to, you know, the whole, it seems somehow part of the culture that's, you know, we have the debt crisis, we have all these things where the future just seems very precarious and, and, and no, one has a, no one has a positive picture of it, do they? So I think that's one of the reasons why the future is not something that perhaps uh, music is preoccupied with. But also, you know, the past is more available to draw on as well. One of the things that I look, talk about in the book is um, just that it's never been more—it's never been uh, so accessible, so instantly uh, through the internet, through YouTube, through you know all these things. So that's another reason why I think uh, musicians are excited by the past, you know, and, and trying to f- uh, find things that no one else has uh, tweaked or tinkered with, you know.
0: Um, one thing I found was curious about Retromania was I, I think of uh, Rip It Up and Start Again, in your previous book,
1: and also a book like Energy Flash. And I think Richard Mania is kind of unique in that it's
2: both of those books are kind of celebrations. Yeah. And, and there were critical things
0: within it, but this is the first book kind of about something that you're both ambivalent about and also ambivalent about your own participation.
2: Yeah. Well I yeah, I think of it as kind of being like an ambivalent indictment if such a thing can exist. Um it's kinda of, yeah, there's, there's a lot of uh, self critique in it as well. Um, you know, there's there's chapters um about my shameful record collecting and uh ex- excessive downloading and all this kind of stuff. Uh, not entirely about them, but it crops up. So <laughs> that would be tedious a whole chapter on my my hard drive. But uh um uh but um yeah it, it's definitely it's uh, unusual it's not oh, it's not primarily uh enthusiasm driven in the sense of i'm not champ- i'm not i have written these books before that kind of um i was championing a kind of music or uh based in you know fanatical love for it this it, is more curiosity driven it's more like i'm kind of bemused by how we reached this point um and inve- investigating it uh doing a little bit of navel-gazing here and there. Um, But uh, yeah, it's definitely... definitely, um, I think, you know, some. uh, usually with my other books, often people, and I hear from people about them, they say things like, you bastard, I've spent so much money because of your books, they've gone and bought records from it. I think that might happen because I do actually, there's quite a lot of retro-oriented acts that I enthuse about and even the writing, uh, or the writing on the Cramp, say, or, or, or Garage Punk. Uh, I have a whole thing on the Garage Punk revival which I was caught up with in, in the 80s. Um, it might make you want to check the music out but I don't think the primary thing is, is oh I'm going to go out and buy loads of records. Which, which was a side effect of the other books people t- tell me anyway Is
0: so that
2: challenging? Which writing. Um, process. Not really because really, I was I was so interested in the topic and also um, uh, it just goes off in so many directions, you know, there's so many um, so many things I had to leave out, so many a- uh, angles, because if you think about it the, the past, uh, the whole idea of the past and music is just infinite, not infinite but you know, there's like a a lot of things you could do with that i mean uh, for instance i don't re- i could have written a whole thing on uh, nostalgia and music as a subject of music you know penny lane or whatever but i i just didn't have the space to do that so um there's endless permutations so i didn't i didn't find it challenging but i i realized that it would um that some people do seem to prefer music books that are you know enthusiasm driven i don't know why but uh uh, and a lot of people seem to like books that they agree with. It's like weird. I, I, I like to read books I disagree with, so I've written a book for people to disagree with. Right? Yeah. Um, Continuing on, what you were saying about sort of like
1: pop music today. Like, I'm just amazed
0: how much, how much trance there is everywhere. Mm. And it's seems all the pop songs, Lady Gaga, Black Eyed Peas, it's, it's trance uh, with hip hop.
2: Uh, yeah.
0: Versus. Yeah, they seem trans itself seems to be you know, dance music, uh, essentially made about as white as possible. It's white and heterosexual as possible. Yeah. And the hip hop they use tends to be taken out in any racial context. So it just seems like it, they take those forms. It's almost the most ahistorical form, isn't
2: it? Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's maybe that a is something related to this apocalyptic thing as well. Maybe that maybe it's it's music just that's for this um, this this kind of wafer thin present. This kind of the uh, present that is just you know Friday the shots, the mistakes, the you know the the, the bad things we're going to do to release uh, the tension of the week kind of thing. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean it it, it, it is interesting that uh, um, I had always thought like you I'd always thought of trance as the most uh, the least the least black of all the. Music that came out of house and techno—it it, it was most Europeanized—and um, but I think for some reason it's also become like the Esperanto of, of uh, world music. Like it's—it's—and um, in fact, in the original trance heyday in the uh, late '90s, there was a series of. Um, Compilations called Global uh, Underground, and uh, every one of them was set in a different city. Uh, like, they'd be, it'd be like uh, Sao Paulo for one CD, Sydney, another one, you know. It was. But the whole point was the music had nothing to do with that city or country. It was like this trans global um, music that had no real sort of place of origin. and. Uh, and the audience, that almost seemed to be the, the fantasy the audience was part of, was this sort of jet-set music, you know. The DJs were jet-setting to these gigs all around the world, and playing this music that seemed to come from no place. And I think that's really, I think actually, I don't, I don't know this, but I think one of the reasons why, speculatively, I think one of the reasons why um, producers in this country have gone for this sound is that it's a way of, of having a record be a success in so many markets, you know. Um, and perhaps uh, there was a point where uh, domestic sales were enough, uh, d- domestic returns were enough that they could do a more sort of uh, R&B, hip-hop kind of vibe. But now they're just thinking like, got to maximise the streams of revenue, and the way to do that is with this kind of international sound, which is trance, because it, it plays every country, every virtually every market in the world. I think that's sort of the bottom line, uh, basic dance floor, effective sound, isn't it? But it, it is weird because, you know, I have this big history of going to clubs in the, 90, in the 90s and um, I'm always driving with my wife and I'm just like, this tune is like, uh, you know, this could have dropped in some club as a peak hour tune that we went to, you know, when we, before we had kids. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh,
1: where do you stand on fan
2: Um, I think, well, I think in Blair's case, uh, I don't really know. I, I don't know what their motives are, but I, th- you know, I think, um, I never used to be a big fan of Blur. but I've had a grudging respect for Damon because He has kind of done interesting things, all kinds of, you know, did Gorillas, he did uh, The Good Batman Queen, which I thought was great, and a whole bunch of interesting projects, uh, and sort of kind of reinvented himself as this, David Byrne figure. So I imagine probably if in his case he's reformed Blair more out of loyalty to his fellow bandmates, uh, and perhaps into a, a sort of um, response to just the fact there is this demand, you know, this sort of popular affection for the band. Um, so uh, I can't I can't feel too uh, um, judgmental about that. in Pulp's case. Uh, they're a favourite band of mine, so uh, it's hard for me. And Jarvis Cocker is a, a good bloke. and uh, had me on his radio show, so <laughs> I'm not going to. Sl- I don't. I don't. I think it's. I think it's. It's. It's fine. I mean, obviously, um, it's always weird when you when you've when there's been a band that you've loved and and they seem also epochal in some way, like Pulp um, in in the UK, especially with common people. It was like felt like a really. Epochal song, didn't it? It was a hit. It meant something. It was um, they—they seem to matter. And then it's always weird when a band like that, you know, um, reforms and comes back. And it's there's a little bit of I don't know. Sadness about, it, I suppose, but I, you know, I I got over the fact that Sex Pistols reformed and, and toured, so uh, I don't get I don't get sort of crushed by it. But I don't I'm, I'm not sure I would go and see them myself. Like I didn't go and see My Bloody Valentine because I'd seen them so many times at the time and written about them, and it just and I knew I also knew they'd be playing the same set, you know, and they would do the 20 minute noise thing they do, and you may realise, and it would just be weird to relive your own past, but. Um, I guess it just, you know, I think I think the thing is that uh, it reflects popular demand, and pe- promoters make them offers they can't refuse, you know, and it's just, uh, uh. also the other thing is with with rock and pop, they're terribly cruel industries, aren't they, like we, you know, they do, people, artists do this great work, and then perhaps they find it hard to sort of reinvent themselves after the fourth album or something, but you know, by then they're only twenty-nine. Now, what they're supposed to do with the rest of their lives? Are they supposed to just shuffle off and not embarrass us? You know, so I kind of, I kind of have a lot of sympathy for. I think the music industry is very, very cruel, and uh, you know, there's all the people who don't make it, and then even the ones who do make it uh, have all kinds of issues about reinventing themselves, not wanting to be a, a sort of cabaret nostalgia act, but eventually they they need to pay the bills and that. So I, I don't, I don't judge it too much. I'm, I, I just find the, the accumulation of it, the fact there's so much of this uh, reuni- reunion tours and uh, festivals where the lineups are like half old bands, it's just a bit uh, depressing, I think, yeah, I find. But I, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, be too hard on any individual instance of it. Because everyone has their reasons, you know, and their bills to pay and stuff. So that, do
0: you still see like black music and black culture as being the Playing the same role as an engine? Because I think mean, the first example you brought up is the yeah. British look at black culture and black music across the Atlantic. you see
2: black music and black culture playing the same role? Uh, I think it definitely has historically, and um, uh, I'd like to think uh, it would carry on doing that role, because ideas have got to come from somewhere. haven't they? But um, I don't know. Uh, it, uh, my sense is that it's. Um, I haven't felt like it's been a huge wave of rhythmic Im- innovation coming from uh, black music for a while. Like it feel, feels like, like in the in the in the in the 90s, like R&B and hip hop, they well, they kind of merged into one entity, did they? And they were just there was always some new hot kind of auteur producer that you uh, followed uh, obsessively every last remix they did, and um, it doesn't seem that as Going on to quite the same extent, there are people who are doing interesting stuff, uh, like the 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 dream, and uh, uh, I don't know. But, but it doesn't seem there doesn't seem to be a sort of revolution, a rhythmic revolution, every couple of years in the way that it felt like there was.
1: Dubstep.
2: Uh, well, dub- yeah, dubstep's kind of uh, they come up with some good stuff. I kind of tend to think of dubstep as more like an extension of the nineties. Like it was kind of like um, kind of jungle fans who. Uh, kind of changed the vibe a bit, but they are very much, they had a very strong sense of history, and they're very much uh, aware of carrying on a tradition and, you know, the whole uh, the whole bass drop thing, the rewind thing, all these sort of rituals that came from Jungle, they kind of took it to a new, a, a, a different sound, and a slower sound uh, that maybe reflected the fact that some of them were getting older and not, um, you know, taking pills and stuff like that, but, um, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I would certainly say, uh, agree. If anyone wanted to say, well, what about dubstep? I would say, yeah, that, that's definitely been a zone where interesting ideas have come from uh, in the last I 10 years. Black people <laughs> <would> changed? <laughs> <evil laughs> I don't know, I, I, I don't know. Well, uh, I, I, I couldn't say, but I, 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 one, one thing that I do say in the book, uh, and I'd be interested if you had a different perspective on it, I do, I do argue that retro and, and vintage chic seem to be very uh, white middle class Aesthetics, on the whole, like I, like I like, I was really struck. Uh, there was a Snoop Dogg video that was retro, and I was like really struck because it was unusual. It was like he was all dressed in I don't know bell bottoms, and uh, he was like some sort of uh, out of out of space funkadelic kind of figure, uh, with and his hair was all uh, in a period style, and it was uh, it was kind of camp, and in in a way that you didn't really expect. Um, uh, and that sort of, you know, it was kind of similar to things that has just been the, you know, the norm in hipster white music forever. That sort of sense of playing with uh, pop cultural cliches. But that, but it was striking because that's the first time I'd ever seen it. And you know, I think there are there are like sort of um, sort of golden age hip hop groups like the Cool Kids, right, and a, f- a few other groups that sort of play on this idea that going back to the late 80s. But it's pretty they're pretty unusual uh, in hip hop, I think. Um, there doesn't doesn't seem to be or even even though the hip hop is obviously based around uh, um, reusing and recycling bits of the past to a, to quite a large degree and uh, has a sense of its own history and a black music history. Um, it doesn't seem to have uh, yet anyway retro as part of its makeup. I don't think. What, I mean, what do you think? Is that? Sure. Um,
0: I think. I mean, I, I, well, I haven't read the book yet. But I, I like the connections you're making with these these rich kids that are that are recreating a part of how they understand '70s at yeah. the same time. after Bambaataa is kind of ripping his labels off his albums. Like, I'm fascinated by these similar practices. Yeah. In terms of looking for records. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm really into this this divergence that's occurred. because I would say, I think generally you're right. There's not a big vintage vibe, except outside of maybe the neo-soul singers. Like
2: oh, yeah, that's singers true, yeah. Looking, and
0: kids like D'Angelo studying, you know. So you know these guys like in The Roots and Westlake, they study it, but they don't always advertise what they've studied. So I think that's kind of
1: an interesting difference, you know. And like Dilla will go back and rebuild
2: yeah
0: bits and pieces of soul, but it's not, it's not the same as that sort of.
2: Um, yeah
0: recreating, you
2: know what I mean? There's not the same sense of like sorry, uh, citations and uh, in the music, like whether it's almost like a citation or a, a kind of uh, a very heavily signposted reference point, you know, which has been a thing in, in alternative rock for a long time. Uh, and it's, it's escalated, but you know, you can trace it back to um, things that Sonic Youth did in the mid-80s where they would do uh, have, you know, references to the, the year 1969, they had a whole bunch of things they did that was based around that year. is a particularly significant year when the, the psychedelic trip went went uh, d- went dark and went went uh, apocalyptic. Um, all the bands like St. Etienne, Stereolab, all, all these groups with a a, 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 a sort of sense of um, of m- making, you know, part of the enjoyment of the music was spotting the references and spotting the games they were playing. Um, but I think you're right that in that uh, I think probably in black music generally, there's a sort of relationship with history where um, uh, there is a lot of recycling, and it goes on in Jamaica too. Like you have a lot of re- versioning of old rhythms and stuff like that, but it's not done. There's not the same reverence. It, if there is reverence, but it's not like uh, stifling in some way. It's kind of like we're just going to use this stuff. You know, we these be- we'll use this stuff if this if this beat can be made to work now, we'll use it. Uh, but it's not. Quite as sort of uh, pious or as or as, or as antiquarian and as uh, as it's done in the alternative rock. Anyone? Anyone else?
0: Yeah, I'm curious. I you know haven't yet read your book either, so uh, forgive me if you if you actually cover this in it. But um, you know, there's obviously this long-standing folk tradition of you know cannibalizing, like you know Bob Dylan with the anthology folk series, and yeah. Um, I'm I'm wondering if. Uh, in your book, you draw a line in the sand where where things start to have diminishing returns in yeah. terms of you know recycling, or if you just kind of chose yeah. a stance of being against recycling and just kind of yeah. argued that side of
2: it. Well, no, um, not really at all, because actually, you know, one of uh, one of the things that some of some of my most favourite musicians of uh, uh, well ever, but also particularly in the last ten years, have been groups who. Do rework the past in interesting ways, or seem kind of haunted or, uh, in some way, like the ghosts of the past somehow p- pass through their work in interesting ways. Um, with the with the with the folk thing and Bob Dylan, I always I always feel like um, yes, they use you know obviously both folk in America and British folk involved a lot of. Old songs that were found originally by song collectors, and you know they went around and recorded these people. Often, the you know often the last people to remember these songs that sometimes went back centuries. Um, and you know Harry Smith, as you mentioned, um, and um, I always felt there was such a sort of uh, it was taken so out of its original context as to really count as a new thing. I don't think like when it gets to be folk rock, I mean, you, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing retro about the birds uh, covering, uh, is it Renaissance Fair or something? They cover some ancient English folk song, but it's an electric version in 1965 or whenever it was, on the radio, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's so far from the context that music originally had, there's nothing retro about it. It's stu- It's the start of a new thing in the same way that what the Stones did with the blues was a new thing, because it was, it was the first time it ever happened in youth music, commercial youth music. Um, it's, not, it's not retro, yeah. I don't think. You know, it, what, what's retro, and what I'm doing within my book, is uh, when rock music folds back on its own tradition. Uh, and th- the very start of the rock tradition is taking uh, blues and folk and things like that Electrifying them, putting them in the mass media, combining them with other influences, adding new lyrics, and uh, you, know, a new, uh, it's a whole, you know, it's a you know, a whole new sensibility. It's, it's the start of something, you know. So what the birds did or what Dylan did, I think of them as is, is great innovators. You know, I don't I don't think the fact that they used these scraps of of, of traditional songs as part as as part of their material that they work with. I don't think that seems that's not retro, is it? It, yeah.
0: One last question. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in imagining the future, ideas around surrounding imagining the future. Mm. And I think the fear of atomic annihilation was a big factor in influencing um, a lot of good art.
2: Right.
0: And um, I'm also interested in the idea of you know, a scientist like Einstein uh, being seen as a pro as a cool participant in history and how science now is sort of seen as the corporate show and, you know, show and, and imagining debt and thinking about Woody Guthrie where these kinds of ideas maybe are not as powerful on the imagination as a fear, a fear factor that's so immense that we can't even create forms to describe it. And yeah. I'm just you know, and I, I found in this conversation I just private. I was really tickled by the idea of imagining the future, and notions of that. And I'm just
2: wondering if you could discuss that. Well, th- that's interesting because um yeah, that was such a huge part of growing up. I mean, I one of my school projects I did when I was about 15 or 16 was um all about <laughs> what would happen if uh, uh a twenty megaton or whatever bomb was dropped on London. How far the different radiuses of devastation would get? Would it get to where I lived? You know, I think we wouldn't be consumed by flames. Our house would be knocked down by the three three hundred mile winds or something, and then we'd be killed by the radiation. You know, I mean, it was such a huge looming thing, and um, it, you know, it, you know, it, it around yeah. And it was in pop songs as well. There was, you know, Kate Bush did a song called "Breathing" that was about, um, you know. Uh, Waddling up and trying to uh, protect yourself from uh, the devastation of a nuclear strike, and um, yeah, I mean, I th- that it's interesting. Uh, yeah. One of some of the things that, you know, when I look at my own uh, children or, or young people that I, that I know, things that were such a big part of uh, me growing up, my growing up, my generation's growing up. Are just not part of theirs. One of them is the, the, the threat of complete annihilation. Uh, the other is space. Like space had such a huge uh, such a huge part of my imaginative world, you know, the idea that we were going into space. And you know, just last week the, the shuttle program was shut down. Um, and uh, that was a pretty unimpressive sort of, you know, programme in lots of ways. Certainly it really wasn't as spectacular as, as the as the as the moonshot. Um, and uh, so that's another thing I don't think my sense is that doesn't figure much in young people's imagination's idea of it outer almost space.
0: Like yeah. It's almost as if
2: something larger than we could picture there are these enormous things. One is the end of everything, uh, and uh, and then the other is this infinite expansion into beyond and the destiny of the human race, colonizing the other worlds and all these things like that. So that's these, these immense threats and immense hopes. you know. Um, and, then, and then I think just the, the concept of the future as a whole doesn't seem to have the same kind of libidinal uh, uh, or intellectual excitement. Um, they used to have um, I mean I in, yeah and uh, who knows there's probably a whole combination of things that have uh, led to that um, but you know it does it, it, it does seem to be a general uh, lack of uh, in popular culture of, of sort of enticing uh, and exciting images of the future I, I, I can't really you think of any, most films that are, s- are set in the future uh, are usually really grim, aren't they? They're usually like... Uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, well, there's the one that's set... Um, I forget the name of it, but everyone in the world uh, can, no, can, can no longer produce children. Um, children of men. Yeah, children of men, yeah. And, um, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of movies of that ilk. Um, so it's it's curious. I. I I think there's probably a lot of reasons. I can see there are loads of reasons why people might become obsessed with the past, and, and musicians might wistfully look back to something they didn't live through, but seems more uh, um, romantic, more hopeful, more you know, there's more that sense of you know things happening for the first time. There's a, uh, a, a curious paradox in there, you know, you, you're. you're Harking back to something, and part of the appeal of it is that it was something happening for the first time. So you're kind of defeating, in some way, you're defeating yourself by doing that. But it, it's a human, it's a natural human thing to do in some ways. Thank you very much.